Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Supernatural George. I'm Mittens, and today we are going to be discussing Season 2, Episode 18, Hollywood Babylon, written by Ben Edlund and directed by Phil Sagratia. We all know Ben Edlund is responsible for so many of our fourth wall breaks and just out there concept episodes, but this was really going up, knocking on the fourth wall and then accidentally putting his whole arm through it (laughs) because it was just Hollywood scenery. This episode is a lot of supernatural making fun of itself, making fun of the whole process of making a horror show, making fun of Hollywood in general, making fun of the conceits that we all understand as part of storytelling and how things get written and produced. And considering where they took the actual plot of the show at the end of season 14 and throughout season 15, and even earlier, just bringing in Chuck as a character, a prophet and then God who writes the story that we are actively watching unfold through the show Supernatural. This is like some really early meta meat for us to chew on regarding all of that as well. It's definitely one of my favorite episodes of this season, if not, you know, the entire early run of the show, just because of how much there is to understand about the show and how it could turn itself inside out and reflect back on itself and its own production in our universe. I I just love this episode so much for all of that. But it's also a great character episode for Sam and Dean who finally get sort of a vacation through this process. It's not really a vacation because everything's fake in the end. And I mean... All the promos for the end of season 15, if you'll recall, showed that shot of Sam and Dean walking off into the sunset and that got rolled away as they left the studio, revealing just the gray world behind it. They used that shot from the end of this episode as the promo for the end of season 15, which was just another thing that I my brain refused to let go of how season 15 as what we saw as the finale really worked better with season two than season 15. <laughs> and they even kept kept repeatedly lampshading that through the promos for the show itself. So yeah, it's a, it's a, a relevant visual aid to them walking off into the sunset and leaving the set of the show and how they walked out of our TV lives, you know, and yet it was season two, guys. That's not what it looks like in season 15. Things were very different in season 15. They deserved a real beach vacation instead of leaving a fake show. You know what I mean? (laughs) Anyway, that's neither here nor there. And it's just me rambling and ranting again. Couple little bits of information at the end of the last episode. I it's like the very tail end. I mentioned that I have a story about green onions, which is actually about next week's episode Folsom Prison Blues with the song Green Onions. So the Green Onions story will have to wait another week. Second, I went and had my first COVID test yesterday because my kid got exposed at work and we are all now exposed. So I feel like dirt. So chances that I got the thing are high, but I'm triple vaxxed and 
I feel about as bad as I did after I got the first Moderna injection back in April. (laughs) So I felt like dirt then. I kind of feel like dirt now, but it's not the worst. And obviously I can still like talk and sit up and eh. there'll probably be lots more editing out of like me coughing and stuff. But (laughs) hopefully this goes well. Still haven't gotten those test results yet, but knock on wood that everything's fine and uh, we all start to feel better here soon. So anyway, hopefully everybody else has avoided my miserable fate here. So keep wearing your masks and if you're not fully vaxxed, go get that done. Go get your boosters and everything so you don't have to endure this because it sucks. In better news, we actually have a few supporting documents for this week's episode. We have casting sides for the character of Mick G, who's the uh, producer of the show in that Sam and Dean are investigating the movie. And Mick G is actually a real person. He was one of the producers of Supernatural through the first seven seasons and then stepped back a little bit to be just a consultant in season eight and nine. But he's a real guy. You know, at the end of the episodes when they flash the, after the closing credits roll and they flash the production company cards, Wonderland Sound and Vision is his production company. So that's what you see, the big W at the end of the each episode. That's him. Is He's played by an actor in this episode, but he is physically in this episode just standing in the background during a scene. And I'll point out wh- where he is when when he pops up during, as we go through the episode. Um, but, you know, hilariously enough, yes, McGee is a real guy who really was a producer of Supernatural. <laughs> we also have the casting sides for the actress who plays Tara Benchley. So we can look at those casting sides as well. So I actually have not read them because I'm suffering the severe brain fog and reading anything longer than about a paragraph today is just like my eyes start crossing and I'm not processing words properly. So I have not read them over today. So, but they are there and I will link them for everybody to read. Uh, I think there's like six pages of each. So that's 12 pages of the script. It's about a quarter of the script. So lots of good stuff for us to enjoy there. There's also like tons of Easter eggs in this episode for other Supernatural episodes, just other in-jokes, behind-the-scenes in-jokes and stuff that a lot of them are listed in the trivia and references section of of the SuperWiki page for this episode. So that's a lot to go into here, but I'll mention the few that I just recognize off the top of my head as we go through, but there's tons because, again, this whole episode is mocking the process of making the show supernatural as much as it is about a ghost hunt in the show supernatural. So, so much of this behind the scenes stuff is related to actual production. There's tons of actor reuse from this episode throughout supernatural. There's tons of references to past episodes, like in the movie trailer for Hellhazers, the reckoning there's clips and cuts from like half a dozen different episodes of the show. The cabin that they're filming Hellhazers in is the same cabin that was the hunting cabin 
from two episodes ago, Roadkill. And the water tower is from Crossroads Blues, the water tower under which Dean drew the devil's trap and trapped the demon. So everything about this episode feels self-referential in some way, on some level. And it's the kind of meta that it it's just wonderful. Just to, to see how much love and care they all put into this. And it kind of makes you appreciate the show and everyone who works to make it. Kripke himself has tweeted about this episode, saying that every note that the director receives from the producer about the making of Hellhazers is a note that the staff of Supernatural have received from the network about making Supernatural. So the thing about like, it's so dark, why are all this, why is everything so dark? That was a note they got about Supernatural. Every little note they get that they complain about or try to work around or whatever is a real note that they've gotten. So this is also Ben Edlund side-eyeing the network here a little bit. So that's just something that's important to keep in mind when watching the entirety of Supernatural is this is the sort of nonsense they had to deal with probably for all 15 seasons. And I don't know that it ever got better or worse or, you know, I'm sure it evolved to be about different things because we've heard some of the stories. So (laughs) just helps to keep that grain of salt in your mind about the whole series as you're watching. And since all of this was filmed on the studio lot where they actually film Supernatural in Vancouver and not in L.A., which it's supposed to be Warner Brothers Studios in L.A., it's not, obviously. It's downright Canadian because they're filming it in Canada on the Supernatural lot. And this is the actual studio building where they film Supernatural. So trying to picture everything we've ever seen you know, as an interior or a studio shot from the entire series was all filmed in this building on this soundstage. A lot of the people you'll see in the background of shots in this episode as extras or whatever, or just, you know, they're in the background just doing their jobs and, you know, PAs and stuff are the actual crew of Supernatural. So <laughs> it had to be really refreshing for them to film an episode where they didn't have to like quiet on the set, you know, oh no, we're, we're literally in the background of this shot, you know, we don't have to get out of the scene or whatever, because we're part of it, you know, (laughs) don't even have to pretend like this is being filmed in a diner somewhere or being filmed in a motel room somewhere. It's just literally our set (laughs) is being filmed. So that had to be fun for them on, on at least a few different levels. But I do credit this episode with being one of the first that makes the show a show about storytelling and a show about making shows that are about storytelling and that what control the writer has over the product, what control is given to people who can make choices for themselves, you know, people who have free will to do what the script says or not. And in a super meta way, that goes right back to Team Free Will and the actors not necessarily doing what they're being told to and how that changes the script and how that changes the whole story and the final product that we end up engaging with 
which is what the characters in the show were ultimately fighting for their own freedom from the narrative that somebody else was trying to force on them. So (laughs) I really, really appreciate this episode for an early seed of that whole concept being put into the show. And did Chuck write this one up? I think he did. So (laughs) this is just more layers of meta and I would express myself better if I wasn't completely unwell this week. <laughs> but hopefully I've got I've written posts about this in the past. I think my voice is starting to go too great. I've only been talking for 15 minutes and my voice is already going. Um I've written a lot about this one and I think the most recent time I wrote a post about it for the TNT loop project that I've been doing for a few years really sums up how I feel about it pretty concisely. So just in case I forget anything off of here, I'll link that post specifically. I probably will even reblog it tomorrow because it's I still see it as completely valid. Alrighty then. I guess maybe good that I'm not feeling great today because otherwise I could probably talk about this episode for like three hours and still not be done. But <laughs> my own physical stamina is getting in my way, so... With that said, I think it's time to move on to the episode and I'll just comment what I can and see how if I can actually make it through the whole thing. <laughs> Good luck, everybody. This is another episode where we don't get any sort of a then segment. We don't get any sort of run up to it or introduction to what we're seeing. We just start right in on the action. And it's sort of like a slightly spruced up version of the cabin from Roadkill. They added a little front porch and a little swing to it. So it looks a little bit different, but it's the same cabin. (laughs) They just left it on set until they had to film this episode. And we're looking at it from the other side of the building. In that episode, the, the camera angles were all from a different angle. So it looks slightly different, but it's like, hey, that looks familiar little bit. So there's a lot of that in this episode too. But everything about this cold open looks like it could be the cold open of a supernatural episode because it is the cold open of a supernatural episode, but it's also not. It's filmed. It's a staged version of this clearly because as soon as the director calls cut, we all know we're all in on the premise of the episode. But until that point, Everything that's happening looks like it could be an episode of Supernatural. A girl with a flashlight comes out of a creepy cabin and is looking around through the dark woods. There's creepy noises. The porch swings creaking. There's owls hooting. There's rustling in the underbrush. It's clearly a horror set, which is what we've all tuned in to watch. A show with horror elements. As she's calling out for her friends... We get one camera angle through the trees. It's like a shaky, like, oh, is the monster watching them? Like, what's going to happen? Are they in real danger? And somebody sneaks up behind her and puts his hand on her shoulder. And she turns around and gives a little scream. And no, it's one of her friends that she was looking for. And they're talking about how they're all in real danger and they need to get out of there. The character Brody insists that they need to get out of there right now. But the woman refuses to leave without her until they find her sister. Brody runs off into the night to get the hell out of there. Whatever's going on, it's clearly terrified him. But this woman is brave enough to stay and find her sister. 
she's angry that Brody's left her. We cut back to the camera angle moving stealthily through the underbrush. We hear a branch break. She startles and is scared because something's about to attack her from the woods. She turns around and starts to give a scream as the, as the camera pulls right up on her. But her scream just sort of peters out and lacks the appropriate level of horror of some monster attacking her. And then we see why. The camera angle shifts over behind her. And we see the entire camera crew who'd been filming her stealthily from the woods. And it's a guy holding a board, a board of reflecting surfaces to shine the light on her face. A guy holding a camera with a tennis ball stuck to the top of it as supposed to be her monster target that she's supposed to be afraid of the tennis ball. (laughs) Then we cut over, we hear a bell ring, we cut over and see the director yelling cut. And the whole Hollywood setup, all the director's chairs off to the side and people bustling around in the background and just broke the fourth wall entirely. This is not an episode of Supernatural, except it's an episode of Supernatural. And despite the director having yelled cut, our cold open continues because the real horror hasn't happened yet. We've only seen the staged fake Hollywood version. The prop master comes by, takes her flashlight from her another person comes by and hands her a drink and she walks off over towards where the director is the director tells her she's doing a great job and she had been except that scream you know the scream could use a little work and she's like yeah it's just you know looking at the tennis ball it's hard to find the appropriate amount of fear for a tennis ball and he's like, yeah, it'll only look like that until the VFX guys get a hold of it. They'll, they, you know, do you need to see the concept sketches again to get you inspired? And she's like, they, some, an assistant brings over the book of concept sketches for what the monster is going to look like. And it basically looks like Ghost Rider with a flaming chainsaw. <laughs> so <laughs> it's kind of hard to even take that seriously. But <laughs> she's like, yeah, yeah, I'll find it. I'll find it. Don't worry. And he's like, yeah, I know you will. And he calls for a break and they get the scene reset to try again. So the two actors we saw in the previous scene are taking their little break. Tara's Tara's drinking. Her real name is Tara. Well, the actress is not named Tara, but in the show, she's playing an actress named Tara. I'm going to get really confused with this. (laughs) I'm just going to call her Tara. Um... (laughs) She's sitting there drinking her Snapple and the other actor is talking to a crew member wearing a hat and a long gray hair and he says some wild stuff that he's convinced the set is haunted, like for real haunted, and is telling them wild stories about weird stuff and concludes with, yeah, just saying, you know, as soon as we close up for the day, I'm out of here, like, don't linger on this set after production shuts down at the end of the day. He gets a bad feeling, and he is convinced that it's haunted. And, of course, the two actors think he's kind of nuts and laugh about it. But Tara looks off and watches him leave. Like, she gets that something has clearly made this crew member feel uncomfortable on the set. So she remembers him. This plants a memory for her. For later, which is important. But remember for us, also, this is still our cold open. We haven't seen anything supernatural yet, 
but now we've had several hints dropped. We then cut to Tara rehearsing her lines out by the water tower from Crossroad Blues, where Dean had trapped the demon. Just going over her lines again and again, quietly, not to even be picked up by anyone, but just trying to find her fear in them. Practice screaming, fake screaming like, ah! Like, that's about how loud she's yelling. And she hears a weird noise, like something rustling in the bushes. And she's like, haha, very funny. Come on out. Who's there? And nobody comes out. She hears some other weird noises and nobody answers her. So she's like, okay, this is really not funny and starts walking through the woods. But it's not really walking through the woods. The camera focuses on her feet for a few steps, but then pans back and you can see like, rigging in the background like production rigging and parts of the studio that camera angle changes again and it looks like her from above and you can see her just walk it looks like she's just walking through the forest like a character in an episode of supernatural wood then it pans again and you see more hollywood stuff cases and crates and studio equipment she hears more weird noises and Definitely not noises that she expects to hear without being accompanied by people revealing themselves or, hey, sorry, didn't mean to frighten you or whatever, and move on and do their job. There's nobody there, except she comes out to a clearing where it's like the edge of the set and back into the reality of her film studio, looks up and a light flashes up in the corner of the building, like way high up in the rigging. And it's the man from earlier who'd been telling them that he was convinced the studio was haunted except now he's trapped up in the rigging bloodied and clearly dead his hat's on the ground at her feet and he's dead apparently she lets off a scream the scream that should have gone with the scene that she'd been rehearsing and trying to find her fear for and somewhere else in the studio, the director hears, hears that scream and he's like, now that's what I'm talking about. And then it cuts to the title card. So we think this is a case. We think this is a haunted studio that the guy was right and he got strung up from the rigging because he was on to the haunting or whatever. He was targeted for that. And then we get our own fourth wall break title card to Supernatural, (laughs) and Sam and Dean get involved. Of course they do, because remember last week they were up in San Francisco, and now this weird case happens just down the road in LA. Convenient. They also get a studio tour out of it. They're riding the little tram through the studio tour. We get an overhead shot of what we know is the actual studios where they film Supernatural, If you ever wanted to know what that looked like, this is part of that. The driver of the tram is announcing like facts about the studio. It's first opened in 1927. Yeah, it's Warner Brothers. Dean leans over and says to somebody sitting next to him, you know, this is where they filmed Creepshow. And it's just some random kid with an ice cream cone sitting next to him in the tram. We pan back and Sam's sitting a row ahead of Dean as they drive past Stars Hollow and the announcer is like, this is where they film the Gilmore Girls. If we're lucky, we might even catch one of the stars as the camera has Jared front and center and Dean in the background kind of smirking at him. And that's too much for Jared to handle. That's he, he or Sam. 
<laughs> Sam is front and center, but Gilmore Girls, too much for him to handle, gets out. Dean gets out and follows him away. Because, of course, everybody knows Jared was on Gilmore Girls before Supernatural. So there's your reference. There's so much of that in here. Dean, however, was disappointed that they weren't finishing the tour before going off to look for the quote-unquote haunted set. And I promise not to quote-unquote this entire episode because very clearly nothing in this episode is what it appears to be on the surface. And that's just sort of the plot of the episode. And here we get their little conversation about how Dean just wants to play tourist. He just wants to have a little vacation. He's been wanting a vacation since season two, probably before, but even when he tries to get one, Sam finds them a case. When Dean was complaining about working again, Sam's like, well, you're the one who wanted to come to L.A. Does this look like swimming pool weather to you? It's practically Canadian (laughs) because it's Canada. And (laughs) Dean's like, yeah, I just thought you could use a little R&R after Madison. And Sam's like, I just want to work. It keeps my mind off things. It's giving me something else to think about. He doesn't want to just relax at this point. He just wants to throw himself back into work. As they walk, we get an overhead shot of them walking past where it's painted on the ground. Slow. Yeah, they're taking it slow. I mean, this is still a slow case for them. But I also love this episode because it gives us Nerd Boy Dean, who is nerdy about the things he's nerdy about, And Sam just doesn't know or doesn't care, doesn't have the same interests as Dean, like horror movies. Dean is totally into them, not just the movies movies themselves, but the lore surrounding them, the people who make them, even crew and extras and stuff in movies. Like, he's as nerdy about horror movies as I am about Supernatural. And that's saying something, but... I identify with this guy (laughs) as someone who's that nerdy about Supernatural. Sam describes the man's death on set and how rumors are spreading like wildfire that the set is haunted because, of course, the guy who died was the one who planted those rumors. Remember, nothing is what appears to be on the surface. Doubly true in this episode. Dean suggests it might be like Poltergeist, and Sam's like, yeah, it could be a Poltergeist. And Dean's like, no, the movie Poltergeist. The whole production felt cursed, and lots of people associated with it, or so all the legends go, were plagued by problems that could be blamed on something evil or unnatural. Dean goes on to explain that at least three of the actors died involved in the production because the production had used real human bones. And that the whole production was just cursed. And Sam's like, yeah, it could be something like that. But Dean describes this as Sam not knowing their, quote, cultural heritage. I guess he means as hunters, but also as keepers of lore of the supernatural. When supernatural things happen, it's to their benefit to know and understand and debunk where it's fake and find the truth where it's real and to know to protect themselves because that's their jobs, you know? Have a little pride in your work, Sammy. Know your cultural heritage. So it's clear that up to this point, Dean had been sort of dragging his feet about getting involved in the case. He just wanted to play tourist. But Sam describes that he hasn't been able to find a death certificate for the man who died, Frank. He's like, but it is L.A. That might not even be his real name. And 
like, why would a stagehand use some sort of assumed name? You know, it's not like he was an actor going under a, a working name. It was just some guy on the crew. Maybe, yeah, maybe he did change his name, but why can't Sam find a death certificate for this guy? Already, we as viewers should be going, hmm, yeah, that's not right. There should be a death certificate for a guy who died that publicly and in that sort of fashion. But there isn't. Right now, it's just rumors. But Sam's like the witness described a figure disappearing right as she saw his body. Dean's like a witness. Who's that? And Sam's like, Tara Benchley. Dean's like, whoa, 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 wait, Tara Benchley? And he quotes a couple of her movies that she's in and... Sam's like, okay, so now you're on board you because of this the actress that Sam has clearly never heard of. Dean's like, I'm, I'm just a fan of her work. She's very good. <laughs> and ducks his head, waiting for Sam to mock him for liking this actress in, in her B-movie horror scream girl roles. Sam just side-eyes him. Dean just walks away like, please don't make fun of me for this, but I enjoy her work, okay? They finally find the right studio where the supposed death had occurred, and they find production still moving along. They have a studio rep guy, the suit, come on, and he's talking about how this should be all be brighter. You know, can we get some more color in this? The guy playing Mick G says, uh, you understand this is a horror movie. And the exec says, well, why does horror all have to be so dark? Why can't we brighten it up a little bit? And it's like, Dude, have you ever seen a horror movie? Ever? This is the aesthetic of the horror movie. But those are, again, real notes that Supernatural writers have gotten from the network. So, <laughs> yes, you have them to blame for everything. The network. I keep, I'm going to probably just keep referring to him as the network guy, but he's the studio rep, the executive producer at the studio, I suppose, who sees Dean, yells out for him, hey, green shirt guy. And he's, Dean's like, okay, I'll go talk to this guy. He gets there, and the guy's like, yeah, yeah, will you bring me a smoothie from Kraft? And Dean has no idea what he's talking He's like, a what from who? Sam overhears this and recognizes the lingo, at least. Pulls Dean aside and is like, yep, one smoothie coming up. And Dean's like, what, what do they mean by, what's a PA? And Sam says to him, I think it's sort of like a slave. So they've got their in in the studio as PAs, grunts, doing the all the behind the scenes runner stuff and taking care of everybody's needs as they come up. So PA is production assistant and they're just the grunts of Hollywood doing everything. Sam gives them a thumbs up as they walk away. And then the network guy says to McGee and the other guy, they'll let anyone in this business, won't they? And it's like, well, yeah, they just literally walked off the studio lot tour and onto the soundstage. They'll let anyone in. <laughs> Except they're the two stars of the show, actually. The one we're watching, not the one they're making, obviously. The whole episode is filled with meta shit like that, and it just delights me endlessly. And again, be glad that my voice is going out because <laughs> I could talk about this forever and just point it out and just be giddy about the whole thing. But I'll try to restrain myself from that. Hopefully. We get a couple of wipe shots showing different aspects of behind the scenes production. Two guys moving a huge fan. 
a bunch of people just standing around waiting for action to start again and going about their business on set wearing headsets and carrying clipboards and looking all official. And then we get a cut to Dean carrying a tray of smoothies, looking like a complete dingus who's half overwhelmed to be there at all. Seeing a movie get made, especially one in a franchise that he loves, starring an actress that he admires. He's just got his little tray of smoothies and he doesn't really quite know where to go or what to do, but golly, he's just happy to be there at this moment. But he's also got a reason to be there because while, yes, it's fun to be on the set, he's also looking up at the rigging up by the ceiling of the studio, realizing that, okay, yeah, this is the spot where the body was apparently found and he's still there to check to make sure it wasn't an actual haunting that killed him. He sets his little tray of smoothies down and gets out his EMF detector and starts climbing the stairs up to the top of the rigging. When the lights go dim, a bell rings and they call for quiet on the set because they're going to start filming again. So Dean's now stuck there halfway up this rigging ladder as filming begins. He's got the perfect view of everything that's happening in the studio at the moment. And they're filming scene 666, which isn't that exactly as expected for Supernatural. It's not scene 666. It's roll six, act scenes. I do know English. Roll six, scene six, take six. There's now four actors on stage. Tara, what we assume is her sister, Brody, and another guy. They're inside the cabin. Tara's got a book and she's telling the other kids, come on, it'll be fun. Dean sees that the action is taking place and he just quietly creeps up the stairs to the rigging. Tara begins reading out of this big creepy old book and it's all in Latin. We cut between her reading, her friends start out looking a little bit scared. We cut to the directors and everybody involved in production and them watching intently as she reads this Latin, this complicated passage from this creepy old book. And Dean at the top of the rigging where there is absolutely no EMF readings at all. He's just looking around like, what on earth happened here? There is no sign of any haunting yet. People swear on what they saw. Tara swears she saw something disappear right when the man's body was discovered. We cut back to Tara as she fumbles through her way through the end of the Latin and fails to completely read it. And her friends are beginning to giggle and crack up because she bungled the Latin. The director calls cut and he's like, yeah, that was very good, you know. And then we cut back to Sam and Dean standing by a popcorn popper over at Craft Services. Dean reports back to Sam that so far all they've learned is that being a PA sucks, but the food is incredible. Standing at craft services, just eating a whole big stack of little Philly cheesesteak sandwiches. And to Dean, that's like the main perk of the job is, God, all this food. But he found no sign of any haunting at all. So what are they actually doing there? Maybe this is actually turning into a vacation for him. And he's perfectly fine if that was the case. While Dean was learning all that, Sam was trying to find as much as he could about the man who died. Frank Jaffe was just filling in for the day. Nobody on set actually knew him. But he did find out that several people had died traumatically at the studio. Over the last 80 years, four people had died on stage nine. 
two suicides and two fatal accidents. And Dean's like, well, any one of those could have become a vengeful spirit. So they're beginning to look into those now as well. Just then, though, Dean spies Tara Benchley going to take a break in her official chair. And he's like determined to meet her. So he walks over there, grabs a stack of papers from somebody walking by and is just like, uh, you, you supposed to get one of these? And it's just adorable how flustered he gets when he finally gets to talk to her. You know, he'd just been talking with confidence to every other person on that set except her. He's just like turns into a kid meeting their idol. And we see Dean have that reaction to a good number of people over the years. It's like the same reaction he has to Dr. Sexy. It's the same reaction he has to Gunnar Lawless, where he just loses his power of speech. Dean is a fangirl, and it's adorable. He tells her he loved her, you know, that he's a big fan of her work. And, you know, after she asks, are you new around here? And he's like, yeah, it's his first day, and it's his big break. Uh, He just turns into a little goober. It's adorable. But he's still there trying to question her because she was the person who found the body, so... He's not being totally incompetent here. He's just given two minutes to overcome his uh, his starstruckness. He tells her that, you know, he's not, but he probably shouldn't be saying this, but he's a big fan. He loved her in Boogeyman. And then she kind of like, oh God, why that? She's like, oh, that movie, that was a terrible script. That's a little joke about Eric Kripke, who wrote the film Boogeyman and has always said it was a terrible script. So... <laughs> there's your knowledge. But as soon as he finishes complimenting her, he segues into his real purpose for talking to her. I mean, fangirling over her was one thing, but he does have business there too. He asks her if she really found the dead guy. He apologizes if it's making her uncomfortable and, you know, he doesn't want to talk talk about it if she doesn't want to, but he's actually there to listen And she finds that refreshing because she's like, nobody else wants to talk about it with me. They all just think I'm going to have a breakdown or something. And so it's kind of nice to actually talk about it. And she tells him she saw something that she doesn't really have a description for. She saw a shape, something. She saw something. They get interrupted by somebody bringing her another Snapple. Dean tries to pick up the conversation again by bringing up the fact that nobody else in the studio seems to know the guy, that he'd been on set, yet none of the other crew seemed to have known him at all. And she's like, oh, well, I have his picture if you want to see. And Dean's like, holy cow, yeah? (laughs) Because they don't know what he looks like. Nobody else could describe him, really. Yet she takes pictures of all the crew with a Polaroid like poses with them and tries to get to know people a little bit at least, which she describes as something that she does because she's bored on set or whatever. But she's got this whole little album that's sort of like a little scrapbook of everybody who worked on the film. And there's a spark of recognition in Dean's eyes. He recognizes the guy. Tara watches him and thinks this is an interesting reaction. And Dean whispers, son of a bitch, because he knows who that is. And we cut to somebody's apartment. A knock on the door brings him to open it to Sam and Dean. It's an actor who was playing a crew guy named Frank, who was paid to act out that entire scene, to set it up, to give the film a bit of mystique, 
to give it that sort of Hollywood aura of something spooky and unnatural happened on the production, and it gets gossip going about the movie. It was all a stunt by the studio to get buzz started about the film. He's not actually dead, obviously. And there was no ghost. That's why Dean got no EMF. But why all of this? So they immediately think, well, maybe this whole thing is just ruining our vacation. Sam starts by asking this man, Gerard St. James, and he's like, you're not dead and you're not Frank Jaffe. Dean is like, yeah, but I recognized you from this random horror movie as some random character. He's got every detail of this man's career. He's like, yeah, I'm a huge fan of this random character actor from horror movies. Like, okay, Dean, you are a total nerd and I appreciate you again. But that actually gets them in the front door. I think that he probably would have slammed the door in their face if Dean hadn't come up with that approach. He wasn't going to talk to them about how he's not Frank Jaffe and not dead. He will talk with fans, though. The actor tells them all about his role, that there's already buzz all over town about the haunting on the set and the death of the guy. And they're saying he's the next lonely girl. Dean's like, who? So obviously Dean's not into YouTubers, reasonably. But Sam brings it back to the point that, well, what was the ghost that Tara saw on set then? And he's like, it was a projection. It was all Hollywood magic. And Dean points out that wasn't that a little bit cruel to her to do that to her, to trick her into thinking she'd seen something horrifying. And he's like, I don't write the script. I just say the lines, just play the part. So kind of a little meta statement on everything that happens in the show. Like, isn't that a little cruel? Yeah, well, the actors are just playing roles, you know? They're just reading the lines that were written for them. And this guy just doesn't even question that. He just plays his role as it's written, no matter what it is. And Dean's like, okay, I can see how you'd just be content with that. And it's not his problem if, you know, an actress is upset by it. It's just what he was paid to say. It's just a role for him. It's nothing more. His real life exists outside of that, which he's happy to redirect them to. He's like, speaking of roles, he's playing Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman at a dinner theater, and he gives them uh, coupons for a free pepper steak if they come to see the production. Dean asks if it won't blow the whole cover of his act to be seen in public so soon after having played this man who supposedly died tragically and horrifically on a film set. And he's like, oh, don't worry. Frank and Willie are totally different characters. Like, he's that good of an actor, he won't even get recognized. And we all know, like, Clark Kent syndrome, that nobody recognizes him as Superman when he puts his glasses on because they're just very different characters. (laughs) Nobody will recognize him as the dead guy because it was just a role to him. It's not, like, something real and reality to him. But after hearing all of this, Sam just is done with this conversation. He's like, well, thank you very much. We're just glad that you're not dead. Thanks for talking with us. And and they leave, except they think their case is closed. You know, it was all a movie hoax. None of it was real. It's not actually a haunting. It's nothing they need to investigate. Except then we cut back to the studio, back to the interior of the cabin again. We get to see the actor's except we also get to see all the behind the scenes stuff. We get to see the directors watching the monitors and the sound guy listening into the sound and 
how the whole back of the building has been basically been removed so they can film scenes in the interior and how they have it lit and just the sheer number of people on set doing their jobs that, you know, none of this is really real. The sound guy, as they're getting the recording, the director calls cut. It's like, yep, that's perfect. We got it. And the sound guy's like, nope, it's no good on the sound. I'm getting some interference. You can hear like weird noises in the sound. As they're resetting to do another take for sound so they can get an uncorrupted sound file, the studio exec is there again talking to McGee about some of the notes that he has for the movie. He's like, the rules are really stupid. So the ghosts are in hell, but how can they hear the Latin chant that summons them? What do the ghosts have? Super hearing? The rules don't track. And it's like, dude, you've never heard of the concept of magic? <laughs> like, they don't need to hear the chant to be summoned. It just brings them. Like, okay, you're too dumb to just apply the it's magic and just let it go label. You're the exact type of person who should never be involved in the production of a horror movie. Ever. <laughs> Over in the background is the writer of the script. McGee's like, you're the writer. What do you say? And he's like, well, we'll put it in an explainer, which we'll later hear is, they must have super hearing. That's their explainer. That's what gets past the network. So Edlin here, tongue in cheek, telling us, the audience, that sometimes some of the stupid batshit nonsense crap that gets in the show is there to appease studio execs. So they must have super hearing is something that they were literally told their rules do not make sense to the network executives. They make perfect sense to all of us. We all, I don't think any of us under, you know, misunderstand how demons get summoned. It's not like getting a telephone call or anything, you know, it's magic. Just let go, moron. But Mr. Network Executive goes over and he's messing with his Bluetooth headset and tapping on his phone and he notices somebody standing there, somebody who looks distinctly black and white, like an old time film. He starts talking to her as if she's like an extra or somebody involved in the production of this show. He's like, I like the whole black and white thing, but uh, that neck wound, you can see like rope bruise mark in her neck. He's like, I don't know if that's going to read on camera. It should be red. She's just standing there and smiling at him. And then she slowly removes her robe and drops it. He's like, oh, well, this is a development. Then she slowly climbs the stairs, the same ones that Dean climbed earlier up to the rigging. And the guy thinks about it for a minute and he's like, yeah, wait up, wait up. He's going to follow the naked lady who's obviously trying to seduce him. As we're watching them film the next take about how they must have heard our chanting. They must have super hearing as they're filming the retake for sound with the explainer notes. Right at that moment, the producer dude drops through the ceiling, dangling from a noose, twitching a little bit. Everybody screams, vacates the set. Obviously something terribly wrong has happened here. And as he gives his final twitch, his little Bluetooth headset drops to the ground and you hear kind of like a busy signal tone. It's not some extra this time. It's not some day crew help guy that nobody knew. This is the producer, like the guy in charge of everything. They didn't need to manufacture drama. They had their very own. 
they go right back to filming because this is Hollywood and the show must go on, I guess. But the writer guy questions, you know, shouldn't we have shut production down? Shouldn't we have said something? And the other guy's like, well, we had a moment of silence at breakfast. He was just a studio guy. You know, he wasn't part of their actual production crew. He's like, he actually killed himself? That's certainly what it looked like. So production just continues. Somebody loses the line and Tarek asks if they can cut. And the director is like, not like he's not even paying attention, really. Like his mind is elsewhere. And he finally calls cut. And then we move to, to see Dean now wearing a headset like he's gotten a promotion or something. And of course, they're back on set now that somebody has actually died associated with the production. Not some mystery guy that they uncovered, that some guy is legit dead from this now. And Dean got to yell cut as well. And, of course, he has more food from craft services. He's not going to turn down the free buffet. After Dean yells cut, the (laughs) McGee tells the, I guess, assistant director, he's like, only I can say cut. (laughs) And then he gets up and goes off to talk to Tara. Tara tells him that she's sorry, she's a little upset, she can't wrap her head around the dialogue. Why would a ghost be afraid of salt? It just sounds a little silly. It cuts to Dean, who smirks as he shovels more food in his mouth, and, you know, he knows full well that ghosts are absolutely 100% afraid of salt. But the director takes this to heart and calls out to the writer, well, what else would a ghost be scared of? The writer's like, you know, want to stick with condiments? And then finally comes up with shotguns and the director's like, that makes even less sense than salt. Meanwhile, Dean's watching all of this, but there's another PA, he believes, with a script there who's just like, oh my God, I cannot believe this. And Dean watches this guy have a little tantrum and storm off. Dean is totally into his job, though. He's got the headset on. He's connected up. Sam comes over and asks how it's going and Dean's commenting on the production of the the movie and Sam's like uh you know I'm talking about the case not the movie you didn't even want to be here you hate being a PA what on earth are you doing we find out that while Dean has been making himself at home on the set he's got a Hellhazers t-shirt on he's got his headset and his gear he's made friends with everybody on set apparently because Sam has been at the morgue all morning he actually snuck in and found out that yes the producer is legitimately dead it wasn't another trick of production to do that he's legit dead and dean's like yeah good thing we didn't skip town then because they thought the case was closed the night before but dean is only half talking to sam and half talking to somebody over his headset turns out it's the sound guy who dean has asked if they could hear the recording right before brad died right before he fell through the roof the recording that they had to redo because the sound was messed up. Dean comments as they walk away that it's EVP, that now, unlike the day before, he's getting EMF readings up the wazoo. It's a legitimate haunting now. As they're going to check out where Brad died, their wardrobe department rolls a cart by and it looks like it has nine versions of like several different Sam and Dean jackets on it. And at the very front, you could just see, like, green stocking material. And it looks like the little alien costume from Tall Tales, the one who slow danced with the poor frat boy. (laughs) But I don't know if that's what it is, but I'm betting that's what it is. 
Dean proves just how much he's been networking with everybody on set. He got a copy of the dailies from somebody who had an on and off thing with somebody else who dubbed Dean an extra copy as a favor to her. And it's like, okay, this is just how quickly he can integrate himself into any environment. They sneak into somebody's trailer and borrow the VCR and or the DVD player VCR. What year is this mittens? Whatever. <laughs> the DVD player and watch the video footage of Brad dying. As they're watching, the film glitches out right after he dies, and they can see a ghostly looking figure of a woman in a long dress who wasn't on set. Nobody remembers seeing her except the cameras picked her up. And Dean mentions it's like three men and a baby, the little ghost boy who appears in one scene and nobody ever remembers seeing this little boy on set. And you can read all about that if you just Google it, but it was a long-standing Hollywood myth that there was a little boy just captured, like the spirit of a boy captured on film in that movie. But Sam recognizes the woman and he's like, I got to figure out where I recognize her from. Sam and Dean are sitting at a table in a disused part of the studio where someone is painting a set in the background, which is probably something they're painting for a future episode of Supernatural. Dean's on his headset and he's going by the name Ozzy while he's there. He's asked if he knows where Tara is and he even gives all the little lingo codes like 10100 or whatever without even having to think about it now. It's just like, He could take this job and stay here and be a studio PA for the rest of his life and probably move up the ladder because he adapts really fast to new situations. But they still have a case. Sam is getting kind of eye-rolly at Dean's immersion into this role as a PA. He hands over the news article that he discovered about the suicide of Elise Drummond, who hanged herself supposedly... In this studio, this would be our ghost that Brad had seen that lured him to his death. But she died basically exactly the same way he did after the studio executive destroyed her, washed her up, fired her, left her destitute. So she hanged herself in that studio into a scene that they were filming. At the studio, they wrap for the day and uh, have a 6 a.m. call the following morning. And Sam and Dean, meanwhile, are headed to the graveyard to dig up this woman's grave. Dean paid $5 for a map that gives all the, where all the famous people are buried in the cemetery. He's all excited that there's other people in the cemetery he'd like to see, like Johnny Ramone. Sam's like, oh, you want to dig him up too? And Dean's like, shut your mouth. Back at the studio where Jay, the assistant, the he's just been there kind of by McGee's side the whole movie I and mean, the whole episode. I'm thinking movie because I'm watching them make a movie. Man, I have got the brain rot tonight. Anyway, he just told McGee, you're kicking ass and taking names. Love those dailies. But on the phone just now, he said to whoever he's talking to, God, I hate the dailies. You know, this McGee, I just I'm, I'm going to direct the next one myself. He's walking through the set and all the lights in the studio go go off and he calls out like, hey, who's there? You know, I'm still here. Hey, wait a second. We cut back to Sam and Dean doing the real salt and burn in a real graveyard, supposedly. But of course, we all understand it's just probably another room on the set they're filming this in. 
they burn Elise Drummond's bones. But that doesn't seem to have worked because back on set, Jay is like trying to find his way out through the thicket of forest in the darkened set. And a ghostly figure moves in front of him. And he's like, what the hell? Jay calls out to the guy to help him find the exit because somebody could get hurt here, you know. And the guy turns around and he's already been very seriously hurt. Like he's been chopped in the head with an axe or something. Like this was a truly horrific accident that caused this injury. And it was clearly fatal. And the guy should not be walking. Yet there he is. And Jay trips and falls over backwards in his rush to get away from what is clearly not a natural occurrence here. This huge industrial fan that they'd been using as like a wind machine on set, like eight feet tall fan, turns on and the man with the horrifying head injury flickers and then disappears, leaving Jay on the ground being slowly sucked into this giant fan as he struggles to get away from it. And it's like, well, first of all, I don't think any fan is that powerful. Any movie set fan is not powerful enough to actually suck people into it. All we see is the blood splatter on a light diffusion screen. So (laughs) he does. He does get sucked into it. But honestly, he could have just rolled to either side and gotten out of the suction of the wind machine. I mean, not that the ghost wouldn't have turned the wind machine to suck him, but man, I would have just rolled my way right the hell out of there. (laughs) But paralyzing fear of this horrifying circumstance would probably render me just yelling and screaming and clawing at the ground as well. So I'm not really one to talk, I suppose, until I'm in that circumstance, which I never will be because everything about that is just absolutely bonkers fictitious that would never, ever happen to me ever. So, hmm. Oh, well, I live a boring life. Thank heck. But then we cut, oddly, to an actual movie trailer for Hellhazers 2, The Reckoning, which starts off with the, you know, this film is not yet rated or whatever screen that the MPAA always puts at the beginning of a movie trailer. They made it look like a real movie trailer. And there's scenes from the movie that we've already seen them film. There's scenes that we haven't yet seen them film, like from the end of the movie where they're using their cell phones as cameras to see the ghosts. But there's also shots mixed in here from other episodes of Supernatural. There's Gordon Walker dipping a knife in dead man's blood before torturing Lenore the vampire from Bloodlust. There's shots of the orchard from Scarecrow. And apparently Cornfield Massacre and Monster Truck. And it's a shot of the truck from Route 666. And it's talking about the director of those movies. And then Charlie's Angels and Charlie's Angels Full Throttle, which doesn't really fit the horror genre. But those are actual movies that McGee directed. So a <laughs> little bit of reality mixed in with the Supernatural episode. And then there's like a little Jay Wiley Productions Presents and Jay was the one we just saw get killed, Uh, a Wonderland film, McGee's production company, Hellhazers 2 The Reckoning, starring Tara Benchley and Rick Craig, who are actors, not real people, but all the other stuff on here, production casting by Robert Ulrich and production designer Jerry Wanick, director of photography Serge Leducer, music by Jay Gruska, and I mean, like, all these are people legitimately associated with, with they are that's their jobs on supernatural (laughs) so (laughs) 
it's really cute that they got credit for Hellhazers 2, The Reckoning. So Sam and Dean still have work to do. They know that a crew member died in the exact same way as Jay did in the 60s. And that's their ghost that we saw. But ghosts don't usually tag team each other. And they took care of the first ghost bones. So what is actually going on here? Ghosts don't usually work in groups like this. Why would they be doing this all at once? As they're just walking through the set trying to figure out what's going on, McGee pulls up in his fancy car and gets out and gathers everybody around for a little meeting, like a little pep talk to the crew that they're working with the police and trying to figure out what happened. And they really want this movie to go out to honor Jay, that he'd want us to keep going and make the best movie we can and blah, 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 giving them the little pep talk. Sam and Dean are standing in the crowd, just sort of rolling their eyes and behind them through this entire scene is a dude wearing sunglasses. That's actually McGee. That is the real human being named McGee, who is the production, the actual producer of Supernatural, holding a little sign that says, Director McGee. Yes, that's him. Just being an extra in his own show while somebody else plays him. And ain't that pretty Chuck-like? Just inserting himself as some minor character and pay no attention to the man behind the curtain kind of character. But no, he's literally the man behind the curtain here. But production has been suspended. He sends everybody home and tells them they'll call him when they can restart production. So that leaves Sam and Dean with totally clear sets that they can investigate to their heart's content now. They've now sort of overtaken this trailer on set. Sam's been watching the dailies. Dean comes in and Dean could not find where the electrician who was killed on set is buried because he was cremated. So there's nothing for them to dig up and burn. After watching six hours of dailies, Sam just comes to the conclusion that maybe the ghosts are just trying to shut down the movie because it sucks, because it does. He's clearly completely done with everything having to do with this movie and this case. But just as he's about to give up, Sam notices what Tara is actually saying. The lines that she's reading out of that creepy old book in Latin. He's like, that's the real deal. That's a real invocation. Why are they saying this in a movie? And it looks like the writer of the film has gotten an upgrade to producer now that Jay is dead and their girl is standing there scraping his name off the door because it's not his office anymore. It's the writer guy has now been upgraded. Sam and Dean go to talk to him, though, because he wrote the script. He's got posters from Hellhazers, but also from Monster Truck, the movie, with, again, the Route 666 truck on it. And something called Carnivore Carnival, which has a shot from Everybody Loves a Clown on it. I mean, just there's so many little details like that all over this episode. Sam and Dean go in and talk to him and like compliment the script. They they talk about how like, oh yeah, we read the script and we loved it. It's great. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, right. It's rocking. Sam's like, yeah, especially all that attention to detail. He's like, yeah, it's me, Mr. Detail. Just not getting the point here yet. And Sam's like, yeah, especially like the Enochian summoning rituals. And the guy's like, wait, wait, you mean that Latin crap? That that's Walter. Walter's the original writer of the script. The PA we saw grumbling earlier that Dean was like, oh man, yeah, he's had a bad day. He was the original writer of the script. He called Lord of the Dead. Dean gets to read that 
And he's like, well, the other script sucked, but this one's pretty good. Sam and Dean are reading this script in a little white picket fenced off part of set, just somewhere on the studio lot. Okay, yeah, they always talk about how they don't want that white picket fence, but they're right now they're right inside the white picket fence. I just find that amusing, considering the context of that phrase in the rest of this show. So not only do they now have a motive for somebody, but it's somebody who has means to do that. If Walter knows all this stuff about conjuration rituals, and he's got the motive of the studio ruining his script, he's probably the one that's behind these weird ghost summonings. So Martin the writer, the guy who just gave Sam and Dean the actual scoop on the writer, Walter, has been summoned to set by Walter to talk about the script. He's like, yeah, I was working on it. And he's like, you guys really worked on it because it doesn't even resemble what it should have been. Everything was real and you turned it in for cleavage and fart jokes. Walter is really pissed, but he's got some sort of weird talisman in his hand. He's like, it could have been all real. And Martin's like, who gives a rat's ass about real? It's ghost story. Ghosts don't even exist. And Walter's like, uh, yeah, that's where you're wrong. And he gets, holds up his little talisman and proves that ghosts are real. Summoning the ghosts. Martin's like, as he's speaking the summoning spell, he's like, okay, nutjob, end of meeting. And turns around to walk away. And the man with the horrific fan injury is standing right behind him. And he just screams because that's what I would do too. So we see why Jay couldn't escape the fan because... We see a different angle now, and Martin is literally being dragged into the fan by the ghost. He's not just being sucked into the fan, he's being dragged into it. We couldn't see that with Jay earlier, because the ghost had turned himself invisible. But now Walter is standing right there, just telling him, you're going to see that it's real, you know, you're not going to destroy my script anymore, blah, blah, blah. Except the man is stopped before he can get Martin all the way to the fan, by Dean and his salt gun. (laughs) Shooting him, the ghost disappears. Martin's on the ground like, what the hell? Sam turns off the fan. Martin's like, looks up at Dean like, you are one hell of a PA. Like, literally, he just saved his life. Dean's like, yeah, I know. And uh, gives him a hand up as Walter is like, oh, shit, and books it. Sam tries to lecture him as he climbs up the stairs to the top of this rigging where so much else other trauma has happened in this episode. Sam's like, you know, you're playing with fire, using spirits like this. You can't do this. And Walter's like, you just don't understand. Nobody understands. But doesn't this Walter's little speech here sound like take the movie context out of it and just make it Dean's life? It sounds an awful lot like Dean towards the end of season 15. You put hard work into something for years and then these people just take it and crap all over it. Like they expect you to smile and say thank you and just do what you're told and shut up while they tear apart your life's work kind of deal. And yeah, that's kind of the frustration level that Dean was at with Chuck at at the end of season 15. And Sam's like, dude, it's just a movie. And he's like, no, it's my life, you know, kind of deal. Like, yeah. 
Walter tries to give them an out to Sam and Dean because they weren't part of this. They weren't the ones who ruined his life. He just wanted Martin. Dean's like, sorry, we can't do that. It's not like we like him, but it's the principle of the thing. You know, we're not going to let you kill him. He's like, well, then sorry. And summons three ghosts that flicker out and turn invisible before starting to attack them. And of course, now they can't see the ghosts. So they run into the little cabin on set, (laughs) slam the door. Sam leans back against the door and Dean looks over and he's like, well, shit, it's not even a real building. They can't even keep ghosts out of it because there's no back on the building. There's no wall. The fourth wall is gone. Har, har, har. While they're huddling in there, Dean takes the opportunity to reload his shotgun. And poor Martin is just sort of like cowering down. He's like, oh man, I can't believe ghosts are real. Dean's like, well, what makes you say that? Like, very sarcastic. (laughs) Martin bothers to ask how Walter is controlling the spirits. And Sam tells him it's the talisman he's got. He thinks for a second and pulls out his phone And opens up the video camera on it. Martin's like, what the hell are you doing? He's like, well, film camera picked him up. Maybe this will too. And it does. And he tells Dean where to point and shoot, buying them a few minutes. Sam passes his phone off to Martin to stand there and scan for ghosts so Dean can shoot them. While Sam goes running after Walter. And Martin's like, I cannot believe there's an afterlife. And Dean's like, yep, there's an afterlife, and mostly it's a pain in the ass. (laughs) Sam manages to catch up to Walter, and rather than have it taken from him, Walter destroys the talisman, and Sam's like, oh, shit, you shouldn't have done that. And he's like, yeah, why not? He's like, you freed these ghosts, you forced them to kill, and they're not going to be very happy with you. We can't control them now. We can't send them back. They're going to do whatever they're going to do now because they got to get their revenge out of you. And then Walter goes down. Something knocks him over. Dean and Martin come running in just in time to witness this horror. Martin, of course, still has Sam's camera that he can use to see what the ghosts are actually doing to Walter. And it's just horrifying. We go back to set few days later when filming has resumed again except this time the scene they're filming is basically exactly what we just saw with Dean and Martin in the cabin shooting at ghosts and as they watch them on their cell phone camera lens you get to see the prop gun firing a a little blank little tiny muzzle flash coming out of it like a little pop gun just yelling over there and just shooting at nothing And that's exactly what it looked like behind the scenes when Jensen Ackles was filming that scene earlier that we saw that looked like, quote unquote, real supernatural, but (laughs) not Hollywood. But it was Hollywood. We're just not seeing it on that level. Meta. Sam's talking to the writer guy and he's like, so you find out there's an afterlife and this is what you do with it. Martin's like. Yeah, needed a little jazz on the page. And it's like, okay, you've turned my life into jazz. Thanks. Sam goes looking for Dean, finds Tara Benchley's trailer rocking a little bit, and then Dean comes popping out. Tara's there in her bathrobe, 
and grinning down at Dean, you're one hell of a PA. And he's like, yeah, thanks. So he got to have his special time with Tara. And as they're walking out, Dean, of course, grabs one last sandwich. And then we get the famous shot of them walking towards the sunset through the rain. The sunset swings out of the way and we can see off into the distance everything outside the studio. Except that's probably fake too because (laughs) it's like cloudy forest mist in the background. And Dean's like, I love this town, meaning Hollywood, but they're actually filming this in Vancouver. So (laughs) just layer upon layer of hilarity. And that's how the episode ends, with Sam and Dean walking off the Hollywood set back into their lives, back to their reality that we know is the TV show that they're making for us. Because Ben Edlin loves to point that out repeatedly to us, that their lives are a TV show. He's going to do it again in season six. (laughs) when he sends them to an alternate universe where their lives are a TV show. Literally, Supernatural is a TV show being produced. And the show will play with that concept throughout the years to the point where it becomes the final end-run plot arc of the entire series. That Chuck is the writer writing their lives and he just wants them to say their lines like they should. He wants them to act out the scenario he wants to see played out. He doesn't care what they want. He thinks he knows because he's going to edit the script however he wants. And he thinks that he can conform them to his will. And they won't. They refuse over and over again. I just love that this episode sets so much of that stage and makes all of that possible at all. Because episodes like this break that fourth wall and make Sam and Dean into characters that have more depth narratively because of it. And golly, isn't that just grand? It's just so good. And I wish I wasn't so miserable feeling today because this episode, I've been looking forward to this one for a while, just knowing how much I love it and how meta it is and how much there is to talk about it. But God, I just feel like dirt so hopefully I'll feel better by next week (laughs) when we do season 2 episode 19 Folsom Prison Blues which is another great episode that messes with the narrative structure and just brings us back to the bigger issues of the season this one was a nice little truly fun vacation for Sam and Dean even though they still had to take a hunt We didn't have to deal with the myth arc of the series in this episode, aside from gently mocking it in the narrative. But they did get a break here. They got to work together. They got to do something a little bit out of the ordinary for them, helping on a movie that ended up incorporating some of their actual hunt into it, which has got to be wild. I mean, Please tell me they went to see this in the theater when it came out. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to see a fanfic of them going to see the movie of themselves and just just to see what the audience reaction is and knowing that they played some small part in it, even if it's kind of like mortifying in the end. 
I'm sure Dean at least went to see it. Welcome to the portion of the episode I like to think of as Mittens remembered something while editing this episode and recorded it to stick in towards the end. Hi! From the day after I recorded the rest of this episode. There's, <laughs> I realize there's a couple things I want to say. First of all, I'm feeling much better today. I'm not COVID positive. Yay, apparently. I just had the flu, so whatever. It still feels terrible, <laughs> but it's not the COVID. Yay. There was a little bit more I wanted to say about Tara Benchley and her character's arc in the movie they were making. She's like the instigator of the whole thing. Her character was the one who proposed that all of her friends read from that book and do the summoning ritual in the first place. So was this all her idea? Like, was she was the instigator of all the action in this movie. She was also, it looked like from the, some of the other shots, like the final girl in the movie, the one who gets to the end and either lives or defeats the monster in the first place. So all the horror movie tropes are active around Tara in her character in the Hellhazers movie. If you know all the the horror movie tropes, find all the meta that Ben Edlin shoved in there into her character and apply it to later episodes that deal with the conceits of horror films, like specifically something like Mint Condition, for example, where Dean is basically taking on the role of the final girl. So it makes for an interesting meta comparison that, again, I do feel a little better, but I don't feel great. <laughs> but it does feel relevant to at least mention that parallel and these themes and tropes from horror movies that apply in this circumstance, just so folks can go off and do their own independent research. Also, there's the fact that one of the tropes in horror movies is the girl who does the naughty thing, you know, like usually sex or it can be other things too, but typically it's girl has sex, then girl becomes the target of the monster and succumbs to the monster because punishment for being not pure or whatever. But Tara waits till the end of the show, like after all the dangers pass before she sleeps with Dean. So, hey. <laughs> but also, so does Dean wait to sleep with her. So, whatever. <laughs> They're consenting adults. It's all good. But it also kind of feels like, oh, well, Sam got to be with a woman last week. It's Dean's turn this week. Kind of like they have to keep it balanced or whatever. I don't know. But <laughs> so anyway, this is the end of my rambling addition to this episode. Since I can barely talk anymore, <laughs> this episode's getting cut short. <laughs> if you'd like to talk to me where I can just type at you without having to talk out loud because it hurts. <laughs> You can find me on Tumblr at MittensMorgul or at SPNGeorge. You can find me on Twitter at MittensMorgul or at SPNGeorge. You can find me on Discord at Mittens hashtag 4865. Or you can email me at MittensMorgul at gmail.com. And once again, I'm really looking forward to telling my Green Onions story. It has nothing to do with the episode, it just has to do with the song Green Onions, which is the opening theme that they use at the beginning of the next episode. And I cannot hear that song without wanting a chocolate milkshake, and I'll explain why. Oh, man, I could really go for a chocolate milkshake right now, though. 
god. I'm still kicking myself because I know there was one more thing that I wanted to add to my little day after editing segment. I can't even remember what it was now. I don't know. It was something about Dean and it was just more like a humorous comment than it was anything super meta important or anything. It was just me rambling about Dean, which, you know, I could do for like a decade, probably. <laughs> Judging by what I've been doing for the last 10 years. So, you know, whatever. <laughs> Have a good one.